Last week, I had the chance to visit uh, an event by uh, the Citizens Housing and Planning Council where I was reminded of my time in London uh, 15 or 16 years ago. They had tea, they had crumpets, and more importantly, they had a very interesting discussion about lessons that public housing in London and in the UK might have to share with the very topic we discussed earlier, which is the future of public housing here in New York City. And so here to discuss that is uh, Sarah Watson, who is the Deputy Director at CHP. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to Max and Murphy. Hi. Thank you. Before we jump into some of those lessons, do you want to just tell us and tell listeners just a a brief bit about uh, your organization and what it does? Yeah, so we're Citizens Housing and Planning Council. We're a nonprofit research organization, and we're focused on housing policy in the five boroughs. We've been around since the 1930s. We actually helped structure the very first public housing deal, um, funneling the money from the federal government to the state to get to build first houses. Um, and since then, we do a lot of practical policy suggestions for government and the housing industry. So tell us about the situation that confronted public housing uh, in London in the 1980s. Take us back that far when this sort of period, uh, I guess a couple different periods of change began. Yeah, so it it is always difficult to look at other places and try and apply them. And we certainly are not doing that to say, hey, look at what happened in London. We should do this here. Everything's very different. But... Um, the UK did hit a very similar sort of crisis in many places also um, around public housing, but like 40 years ago. So has really spent 40 years trying to deal with the very similar issue, which is that it's somewhat easy for government to build housing, but it's very difficult for them to work out how to keep that going um, on an operation basis without more and more subsidy um, long term. And that's really what happened in in the UK. So we had built, um, I'm originally from, from the UK, we had built a huge amount of public housing way more than in the U.S. Um, for many historic reasons, a lot because of we were bombed in the wars and we were structured so the government it was well suited to be the ones building to replace those housing, uh, that housing. So we sort of found ourselves by 1980 with um, about a third of all households in London living in public housing. Slightly different structures than it is here, public housing, but broadly, you know, it was built and owned by the government. Um, So there was about 770,000 homes in London that were public housing and sort of facing very similar issues to here with housing conditions and what to do there's not there was not the money to to rehab in the sort of way that was needed we we had properties that were 100 years old that were falling apart and also properties that we had carried on building through the 70s with very poor building materials and methods also so that was actually already coming to an end and needing substantial rehab or maybe even replacement um so it was a real real crisis point in 1980 and just to put, get out, get ourselves out of it since then just to put that in context uh, 770,000 uh, households in London in 1980 right now New York City Housing Authority has about 175 176,000 so a much larger system you mentioned the challenges and then of course we had both here and over there a wave of conservative government represented there by Margaret Thatcher and she had a plan which involved allowing people to buy their units. Is that right? 
yeah, so there was two big phases um, that happened. And again, we're not saying that this should happen in, in New York, but there was sort of, we're, we are at least putting forward that change is possible and it does take some radical new approaches um, and certainly some bold leadership. And that happened. One of the most radical acts of housing policy really that is ever seen is um, basically overnight giving public housing tenants the right to buy their their apartments. Effectively, a multifamily building is sort of going co-op, um, but, but it was originally public housing. So there was huge discounts. Basically, if you could raise a mortgage, you could buy your, your house and apartment. And we had... You know, because there had been bombing and for many different reasons, we had a lot of houses as well as apartments. So um, they were very attractive to, to be sold. Uh, it was a little harder to get the apartments to sell because then you'd have like half of a multifamily building selling and half not. So it was, became very complicated. But effectively, there was a real clarity of purpose. It was th this property, these properties are creating such a burden on the government and the government cannot keep up with the management and repairs of these units, we need to get them away from the government and we need to give tenants more ownership over over the stock. It was That was really the clarity. So massive discounts, not many restrictions on what to do. It became its sort of own market, um, no restrictions on selling or anything, which had an amazing impact um, on um, actually millions of households across the UK. Um, but then it had the downside of really we were left with the worst quality housing stock with the, with the most troubled and low income um, residents. So then that, that sort of ushered in another phase, which we called regeneration, which I think is pretty applicable to what, what New York is looking at, which is how do we improve housing conditions now? And I think before you get into that, just to this goes to the question of different framework, but the way it worked, I mean, here we have one uh, housing authority for the entire city. In London, it's a little different, right? It was broken yeah. up into council districts, so it, and they kind of operated as, as independent uh, entities as they embraced the second wave of change, right? Yes, but there's certainly something useful in that, thinking about planning for how to improve housing conditions. Um, it's obviously very useful to be able to pass out a stock like that. So if you take out all the all the um, houses and apartments that were sold to tenants, um, you're left with about we were left with about four hundred eighty thousand, and then it was that was broken up into effectively thirty three different housing authorities. So that's not you couldn't really compare that here, but at least there's sort of concepts that we think would could be useful. The concept of being able to pass out the stock in all these different geographies with all these different needs um, certainly helped the situation there because the thirty three authorities could um, work out what the best option was for them to improve conditions once they were armed with an array of options that were that were really created and structured yeah it was like um, a menu pretty well like a menu confronted them right they could they could um give the entire stock to a, a private uh, operator they could bring in a management company the tenants could take over right there were lots of different options yeah so i think what is is one of the most useful lessons is that is really the clarity of purpose around this phase that was called the regeneration um, phase, and the clarity was that every 
public housing apartment and house had to hit a certain standard in 10 years, a housing standard. And that sort of clarity of purpose was very, very useful um, in then working out, okay, so how, how are we going to get there became the strategy that every housing authority had to look at. Um, you know, it wasn't about building extra units for the sake of it or not or demolishing for the sake of it or you know any focus on um specific tools that often happens when like a program for rehab or improvements is created it was really a focus on the objective and it was every unit having to hit this standard that in the uk was called the decent homes um standard which was set stipulations for light and air and heating and all the things that we're very familiar with in the private market in in New York. Um, So that was sort of a clarity of purpose. And then the big, um, also big dynamic shift was that then the housing authority was given a selection of options for how to get there. And then in partnership with the tenants, work out the best route for them. Um, and I think there's just some really useful concepts in there for making change happen in a good way. There was an acknowledgement that we are going to have to bring in private industry in some way, whether it's private managers, a private manager structure, private capital, private developers, um, whether it's for profit or not for profit. Like that was definitely the conclusion because the, the housing authorities themselves could not bring the, this stock to the decent home standard. But if we're going to do that and bring in these private elements, we really need the tenant's voice to be elevated to make sure that the balance is still there, that they're representing the public good, and also they know what is needed for their um, for their developments too. So it was really then the housing authority and tenants passed out in these 33 ways who were given what is what do we want to move forward what do we need um maybe we need full demolition and reconstruction of the development maybe some of it's just improved management how should we do that some of it there was very you know in some some areas very motivated very active tenants who wanted to do a say their own management organization maybe they had a majority of tenants on a board for a separate organization so there was a real range given to the housing authorities to choose from but it allowed them to say what is best for us again with this clarity of purpose how do we get to this improved standard for all public housing residents today and so we're we're you know two decades out from from this beginning of this period of change and i know you're talking about 33 different authorities obviously 33 different experiences but broadly what do the results look like and i guess the things that would matter to folks here is did the quality of the housing improve and were public housing residents able to continue living there Yes. So without a doubt, this approach improved housing conditions. So you can see, and this helps to have had such a clarity of the objective because we can follow, we can track the housing units by those that did not follow the decent home standard. So we call it the non-decent homes. Um, Fell from about 42% of the public housing stock. So we were almost a half did not follow the standard. Now we're around 16%. So this this phase has really been going on for 20 years, and it's bit by bit, each authority doing different things. So there's still some problematic housing conditions that remain, but it was a real improvement in 
um, in that objective, in improving the conditions for existing residents. And they, it was tackled in very different ways. Some housing authorities transferred their entire stock to an affordable housing owner, and most of the stock was demolished, and then the tenants were very much involved in making that decision when they were armed with a whole array of options. That's what they chose in partnership with the housing authority. Um, last week, we brought a public housing tenant um, from the UK who was very active in his regeneration project in North London. And he um, is part of a resident steering group and they absolutely chose demolition, did not feel that anything else could be done um, for their homes. And then he's been involved in the master planning for the new site, getting um, legal promises that there's a right to return if they have to move away, if a tenant has to move away, that what, what unit they'll be given when it's rebuilt. Um, what the man active management ongoing repair service is going to look like really at every turn being that continued voice of the public good even though now his landlord is a, a private manager. When, when uh, that decision was made, are tenants guaranteed housing in the interim? Um, you know, there's there's some real consternation in the city around uh, any proposals to knock down any buildings, even if uh, even if folks are promised, uh, you know, nothing will be knocked down until new buildings have been built. Um, what, what were those uh requirements like if any. there were many there were many different because it was a menu of options there were many different ones but i think because the tenants were so much involved in being able to select what option was best for them they were often you know it's not about tenant consultation it's really about them working with the housing authority and the other the new private affordable housing entities coming in to work out what the plan's going to be in partnership. So like the tenant who was spoke last week at our event um, actually has, you know, a, a partnership agreement with the local, with the housing authority and the, the private developer. And they, he, the residents meet every month with the mayor of the local authority to go through um, exactly what the plans are. So he's at the table uh, representing the residents at all these decisions. So he himself then, you know, worked out the best strategy for residents in partnership with the realities of the project. Um, and in that way, you can mitigate some of the real problematic parts of it because he's speaking as the people who are really going to use the home. So he, he himself selected and was okay with moving twice because he understood the rigors of how difficult the demolition was going to be and he's privy to all that information so um, I think a real message is that people residents can make completely rational decisions about what happens to their stock if they're involved in the decision making and they understand the clarity around the purpose and then they get the trust and um, structure to know that things that are being promised will happen. <laughs> One of the most um, important and controversial aspects of the city's NYCHA 2.0 plan, uh, as I'm sure you know, is the idea of the uh, infill development, new buildings going up on underused NYCHA land that include some combination of market rate and affordable housing, you know, depending on the project. Um, the more market rate, the more that the city can ask of the developers to then feed in 
into repairs at those NYCHA developments. Um, what's your advice? What are your thoughts on that element of the plan? Um, you know, that, that seems to really get a lot of people concerned um, here in the city. What do you, what do you think about that, that aspect? And um, is it something that uh, given the dire state of NYCHA here that the city should really push forward aggressively? I think push forward aggressively is like a problematic uh, way of saying it. I think, again, that it's not using precise examples from the UK, but I do think that there's some lessons in just the dynamic of the way this is done that really could be useful. And I think that the, the a clarity of purpose around we we absolutely need to improve housing conditions for existing public housing residents. Like that should be a number one goal. And it really did have a strong impact in the UK having that goal. And then also if you then have that and and public housing residents recognize that, that we're leading with that and can be part of the decision-making of how to get there, um, most often in the UK, residents completely understood and it made sense then to think about the development as a whole and where infill could come in and how how it's really benefiting existing residents. But it started with how it benefits existing residents. That That's where the conversation started. I mean, the tenant last week spoke a lot about how they, he sort of, he, he was privy to the financial you know, analysis, the pro formas for the development. So he could see that the value for existing residents, if more market rate condos were built, even in comparison to rental. And so in the end, residents, because they trusted the process and they trusted the the partnership agreements they were under and they trusted what their future plans were going to be for their own units and their their future sustainability in the neighborhood, then they actively chose more market rate condos because it would benefit them. So they were part of that decision making. So I, I think it's it's much more about orienting things for for a certain purpose. And for us in this crisis point, it should be about the housing conditions of existing public housing residents. Interesting. Just a final question, Sarah. I'm curious. My under- my impression of the UK is that the the state and the public sector is held in uh, historically in higher esteem than it is here. I mean, there's a aversion to to the Commonwealth here to publicly public ownership of things. It's generally not something that has been um, appreciated by the, the the broad middle of American political opinion, whereas in the UK you have the BBC funded by a public license, you have the National Health Service. So in this case, back in the 90s when we were talking about beginning to involve the private sector even more heavily in public housing, how did how did the people behind the plan navigate what I much what I imagine must have been some aversion to that by people who thought that this was a public uh, entity that and that, that that was sacrosanct? Yes, um, it was controversial. I, I really think the the, the 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 dynamic of involving residents really in the decision making was so was really radical because it, they do act as this balancing. It was put forward in a way where you are going to be the balancer so that we don't have to worry about this private influence. Like That was why it was such a prominent part of the structure um, because of the 
because of this sort of ideological, it was a it was a radical thing for for people to think that this property was not the government's, and quite often the land was fully transferred as well to affordable housing owners, um, which is doesn't usually happen here in, the, in any public housing transfers. Um, so yeah, the the residents being involved right at the beginning, and again, not just consultation, but making the decisions with the housing authority, with the affordable housing developers, I think mitigated a lot of that. Um, But there certainly was still, I mean, half of the proposed transfers were voted down. I mean, again, the tenants had to vote on whether they wanted it or not. Um, And there were no votes. So the the residents with the the housing authority and the affordable housing Developers, the tenants had had already. They were the ones picking the the new affordable housing providers. Uh, they were the ones shaping the plans. They would put it together in this legal offer document, so all the residents would know exactly not only that what a new development would look like or infill would look like, but also what their lease would look like, what their upcom- up and coming unit would look like. You know, long-term rents, long-term management plans, long-term community development and jobs. Like they would, they would set all of that up, and then all the tenants on the on a development had to vote. Right. So it and didn't. Still, did not. There was still some no votes because often because of this ideological. Did um, not just happen. Slide. Well, yeah. Sarah Sarah Watson, deputy director of the Citizens Housing and Planning Council. Thank you so much for joining us and walking through that interesting episode uh, across the pond. Thank you so much. Thank you. 